You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Daniel's vision. The book comes together, the people of God will suffer through godless forces, but God's kingdom will rule over the whole world and his people will be vindicated. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can see more information about our ministry, study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media now at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to this our, um, third session of looking at Daniel, the book of Daniel. Uh, we've got just this week and next week, we've uh, come to halfway through the book. The first uh, six chapters were about narrative stories, and now the second six chapters are about the visions uh, that Daniel has, the explanation of them, and uh, a very important dream that he has. Let's just pray before we start. Father, we just commit ourselves again uh, for you to teach us by your Holy Spirit, Lord. We want to be really open to things you want to show us, to remind us of. Therefore, Lord, we commit ourselves to listening and to being attentive to you speaking to us. Lord, just anoint the ears, uh, both in the room and those that will uh, hear it online or, or recorded later. And uh, bless me, Lord, as I seek to just make this as clear uh, and as uh, exciting as possible as well. Your word is always exciting and positive. So bless us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the time of looking at the visions. This is what, I mean, people enjoy the stories of uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego going into the fiery furnace and the story of Daniel. But students study this because they want to know what the visions of Daniel mean. We've seen the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. We've already looked at that. We saw it represents the, uh, the four nations or empires that will follow on from uh, the Babylonian Empire. And we said that has set the scene for every dream or vision that will follow. So they all follow that same pattern. So Daniel has three visions, as I said, and he has a, one chapter is just a very extensive prayer of his, uh, realizing it's the time of their release from Babylon and uh, uh, seeking the Lord on that. So in the three visions, we see uh, three similar pictures that he gives. We see uh, evil empires rising up and then falling. Uh, and in the end, we see God comes in and he establishes an eternal empire with Jesus Christ as the king. Of course, as Christians, that's what we're all looking for. The second coming of Christ when uh, he brings the uh, the new kingdom of God to, to the earth and all the visions that he gets points towards that. We also see in the three visions that he has uh, an antichrist figure or person. He rises up each time to destroy the people of God. And this is what really the students are really pulling apart here. The whole thing of Antichrist. Who is this Antichrist? Has he, has he come already? Is it, is it a movement? Is it a system? Uh, is it a person? Uh, and this is what we'll be looking at. 
uh, as we study these uh, visions together over the next couple of weeks. There were three possible antichrists uh, that are generally looked at and considered. The first one was um, a historical character now. He was, we could call him the Grecian antichrist. Antiochus, uh, and sorry, I'll try and get this right because I'll have to say it many times. Antiochus. And Antiochus. It's not easy, is it, for English people to say that? And I've, if I've pronounced it wrong, I really am sorry. A-N-T-I-O-C-H-U-S. Antiochus. Uh, and his second name isn't any easier. Uh, Happy Thanus. Epiphanus. Okay, so I won't say the second name. I'll just try and stick with the first name. And, and you know, if, if, I, if I wobble a bit on that, you'll be patient with me. So, so that's the first Antichrist that is considered. The second one is, is the Roman Antichrist, which wasn't a person, but the whole system of Rome when it completely sacked Jerusalem and, uh, well, in AD 70, Israel was no more the Jewish people were dispersed throughout the world and it wasn't until the 1940s that we know that Israel became a state again. Is that the Antichrist? Uh, the third one that is considered is a future Antichrist um, that is uh, yet to rise up and he appears immediately before the second coming of Christ. So we'll consider all three of these, see how they fit into the different visions and at the end, it's up to you. Like a lot, of, a lot of things that are disputable in Scripture, I mean, there are obvious things that are just certain and things that we should do and shouldn't do, character things. But some of this stuff is just, well, I can present what Scripture presents and you just have to pray about it and make your own decision about it. Remember, these are prophecies. And so we're to judge all prophecy. We have to be discerning for prophecy. We want the Spirit of God to help us and lead us in that. So in our study then, we will look at each of the visions separately uh, and at the end we'll be left to consider. We'll have to consider, as Antichrist, was he this historical figure that's come and gone? And that's it. Uh, uh, if the destruction of Jerusalem was Antichrist, that's historic as well. So the Antichrist has come and gone. Is he yet to come, a future event? Are all three antichrists? And will all three happen? And should we just embrace all three of them? Because that can happen sometimes in scripture as well. It doesn't just happen once, a prophetic thing comes again and again. So when we look at the Psalms, is the Psalms talking about David? Is it talking about Christ or is it talking about you? So we can apply these things uh, uh, usually multiple ways and times. Let's look then at this first uh, vision of Daniel. He says, I had a dream and visions passed through my mind. So he so, was that a dream or a vision? Well, there's actually no difference between the two. A vision is what God shows us when we're awake. We have an, an open vision, as it were. And a dream is visions that come at night. And uh, it's just put the two together here. I had a dream and visions passed before me, just like when you have dreams, visions pass before you. 
these visions come from the Lord. So um, if you've had that experience of God giving you a vision, it's exciting. And usually when you wake, it's very clear. You can remember uh, a lot of people when they dream, it's gone. It's almost gone before they've uh, realize they're awake, but a vision from the Lord often lingers and stays. I would encourage you, if you're used to getting them, always write them down, please, as much detail as you can at the time, and then ask the Lord to show you what they mean. Uh, it's not for someone else to tell you what they mean, uh, because the Spirit of God has come to you, and it's the Spirit of God will give you the revelation of the vision. So he has this uh, vision. He sees in, uh, in this first vision that he has, he sees four beasts appear before him, it says. And we'll listen to it again, the message. So I'll just go quickly through it as I do an introduction uh, to what you're going to listen to. I'll put the whole chapter on, then it will come in far more detail. He sees a series of four beasts. He says, one is like a lion, and goes into some detail. One is like a bear. The third is a leopard that's got wings on it. And the fourth is the one that we've all got to worry about. Uh, it says the last is like a super beast. He's identified as really evil empire that's going to rise up, num two, three, four. As I said, with Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of the statue, there were one, two, three, four. So it's almost very similar to that. Uh, this beast that rises up has lots of horns coming out of his head and that normally represents kingdoms. A, a horn is representative in the Old Testament many times as a king. Among this head of horns that appears, a little horn comes out of the middle of it all. It calls it a little horn in scripture. The image that is created is that of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes the people of God. This is this antichrist character that we're examining and looking at. God's people in this uh, vision that he has, they're given a name. They are called the Son of God. A little bit confusing because as Christians study in this, we know that the Son of God is one of the titles of Jesus. And it's given to him here, but he also when he refers to the Son of God, he's talking about the people of God as well. So just be a little bit careful as you listen or read this that we've got to differentiate between the two. But then all of a sudden when this evil one arises, this uh, demonstrous king, as it were, this evil king, uh, God appears on the scene. He has a name as well. He's called the Ancient of Days, and we see him coming on his throne. He destroys this super beast, as it were, and then we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and he is established at the right hand of God, and he rules over the nations in course this time when, when Christ comes and uh, the new kingdom is established on earth. So that's the general vision that he has. Chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. 
The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched... This horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise... Different from the earlier ones, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. 
Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. It seems as though, as I said, the, the book sort of comes together here. We have these narratives of the people of God and the persecution that they go through and how God takes them through different trials and causes them to come through. They're under trial all the time. And then in the second part, we have these uh, uh, visions uh, that, that, that Daniel has about how things are going to work themselves out. The stories in the first narrative speak a lot about the faithfulness of God's people and the fact that they're being persecuted all the time. They're serving their kings. They're doing a good job, and yet they come under persecution. So uh, this is of little comfort to you. You will be persecuted. <laughs> the people of God will always suffer persecution in this world. And the whole book is to encourage us, press on, keep going, because this is what happens in the end. Uh, God comes and everything is vindicated. So to complain as a Christian, well, it won't do you any good. It won't stop the, the things we have to go through. We just have to uh, dig into the word of God, walk in faith as it were, keep trusting him and just expect these things that are going to come against us con constantly to keep coming. And uh, eventually God will vindicate everything. The suffering is because human kingdoms rebel against God. Systems, kingdoms, they're in rebellion. And those that are in rebellion become like beasts. You know, the world is going through this Ukrainian war at the time. And you, you look at these precious people, they just want to build homes for their families and they want to work each day and they want to bring their families up. They just want, they just want normal life. And yet we see this brute beast coming and smashing their lives and their country and devastating them. And we know there is, there's no real recovery for any of these people. I mean, it would take a lifetime and a half to build up what has been destroyed and ripped away from them. And of course, we don't know the numbers who have died. Tens or hundreds of thousands it will run into as the war continues to go on. A brute beast? Most certainly. And we've seen many of them in history just rising up again and again and again. So this vision that Daniel has is to encourage God's people. It's no... It's not an easy thing to be patient in the time that we're here and to wait until he brings his kingdom and the world uh, is vindicated, as it were, for all the sufferings that Christians have gone through. But it raises the question then, okay, I'll swallow that one. We know that the devil is rampant in the world as it is, but when's all this going to happen? When, when is he going to come and put an end to all this? Is this going to go on and on and on forever? Well, the visions are to explain uh, something of when uh, this will all come to an end. There's a name given to Jesus there, the Son of Man. 
Uh, interesting, Jesus uh, is given quite a number of titles in Scripture. Uh, he's referred to as the Saviour or the Lord or the Messiah, as the Son of God. Ironically, he's given the title here, the Son of Man. Um, it's the title we use least to describe Jesus. We don't often use that one, and yet Jesus used it more about himself than any of the other titles. Through the Synoptic Gospels, if you read them, he talks about himself being the Son of Man, the, the Son of Man. In fact, it's, it's recorded 69 times. So when Jesus would have referred to himself as the Son of Man, the Jewish people would have known exactly who he was referring to. They would have known this story. They would have known that the prophet spoke about the Son of Man. And when he said, I am the Son of Man, or the Son of Man has come to do this, they would have known exactly who he was calling himself. Jesus was very careful not to use that title, the Son of Man, uh, until towards the end of his ministry time. He didn't use it at the beginning, nor towards the end. They knew that the Son of Man would come uh, at the end of a time of great suffering. He was being, he would come in at that, he would, that's when he would step into the scene of time after the time of suffering. Listen to what it says in Luke 9 and 22, talking of himself. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. The Son of Man must suffer. It's though, if that's me and that's my title, it goes with the suffering. The people of God, uh, at the time of the Babylonians here, they were suffering under God and they would be exalted, he says. Jesus says, I will suffer but at the end I will be exalted, I will be raised up. And unfortunately, you too have got to suffer. And in the end, you will be raised up. Just as Jesus, the Son of Man, suffered. I said that the Son of Man referred to both Jesus and the people of God. That's interesting, isn't it? a little play on words. So we are the Son of God. So we could say the Son of God, I, I must suffer many things and I must be rejected. Okay, uh, rejected by those that are opposed to the things of God, I will be killed, and after that, I will be raised up. So we can put ourselves into that place. Another thing this particular vision talks of, it talks about the gift of the kingdom, what God promises us. We live in a world of uh, godless forces, uh, the kind of uh, mutant beasts we see in Daniel just rising up, representing different evil earthly powers uh, against the people of God. As such a world like this is out of control. Once we reject God's sovereignty, his authority over our lives, whether we're just ordinary people or whether we're leaders or nations, to turn your back on God is the most foolish thing we can do. And so we, we get out of control. They say that the United Kingdom is coming more and more secular. It's turning its back on God. So the future is only chaos. 
we, we can hope that our politicians will sort things out, but we know that Scripture says, no, you turn your back on God and things will just go terribly wrong. They will go out of control. Often our lives are out of control because we have to live among systems where people are not honouring God. And so our lives suffer, as it were, out of control. And yet our hope is there. This, this whole book teaches of the hope, the future, the vindication, the salvation of God's people will eventually come. God's desire is to give us the kingdom where Jesus is king. That's what he wants for his people. We have all these terrible, evil leaders, but one day we will have Jesus as the king and king of the whole world, and we will be subjects to that king. It says in Luke 12 and 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, it's going to be good, isn't it? <laughs> battle on folks battle on but one day it'll be your father's good pleasure to make you subjects in the kingdom of God this is like I said the overwhelming message of Daniel the promise of God God will eventually come and he will render judgment as he does in every one of these uh, visions that Daniel has and He'll give you the kingdom. The kingdom is reserved for you. It shall be forever, as it says, world without end. Many students, when they come to Daniel, what they're really wanting to get their teeth into is working out this antichrist person that I've already mentioned. Many students, uh, they believe the little horn that we read about there or you heard about is... Uh, is the one who is the Antichrist that will come forth. He prevails over the, the people of God until the Ancient of Days appears. He has this rule right to the end until Christ comes back into the earth. Antichrist, John says, is like a spirit. People who oppose the fact that Jesus came in the flesh and he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Sent One. Anyone who opposes that, he, John says, you have the spirit of Antichrist. You're working against God, and that's in the world today. Paul has quite a bit to say about this Antichrist figure as well. Let me read a little bit of you. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 to 12. This is what Paul warns us about. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. He calls him the lawless one, the the Antichrist. He said, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time, for the secret power of the lawless is already at work. As I said, that's what John is speaking about. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do it till he is taken out of the way. 
some people say that that which is holding the Antichrist back, the lawless one, this person to emerge, is the Holy Spirit that's in the world. Some would teach that the church is raptured out of the world, and as the church is raptured, then the Holy Spirit leaves with the church, which leaves this Antichrist figure, this lawless one, to just come forth. There's no restraining upon him. All of this is up to debate, I know, and we, uh, people have lots of different opinions about it. He says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. There you go, that's Paul's uh, outline of him in Thessalonians. Talks about, uh, in that passage that we read about, all nations and languages and peoples being gathered together. It talks about 10,000 times 10,000. Any mathematicians in the room work that one out very quickly? It's a big, big number. 10,000 times 10,000. Uh, and it says they were all around the throne. Some believe that is the saints that have gone ahead uh, or the angels that are there or a combination of the two. It's a great multitude, it says. In Revelation, uh, John speaks about it like this in Revelation 7 and 9. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Daniel almost says identical things here as John in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, And there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. When he speaks of clouds, he's not talking about those fluffy things in the sky. We know that. Clouds is reference to hosts of people coming with him, be it angels or be it the saints that have already uh, gone before us. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. Almost the same words there that John uses in Revelation, Daniel uses in 70, uh, Daniel chapter 7. All humanity, the ransomed people of God, meeting, meeting the King of Kings, who will be the King of this final empire. It's an interesting picture of both uh, the incarnate Christ, the divine, uh, and the human coming together. The figure who is presented to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, is clearly divine. He's coming in the clouds of heaven, it says, moving through the heavens. He's clearly human in that he's called the Son of Man, the bringing of the two together. He is subordinate in role to the Ancient of Days. Yet he's given, it says, he's given authority by the Ancient of Days to have dominion over all peoples, all nations, and all languages. The paradox of the incarnation itself. The second person of the Godhead takes on human flesh and is born 
in the likeness of men. Constantly, Daniel is painting this picture of the terrible trials that we go through, these awful uh, nations that rise up under terrible despots of leaders, and we are to remain patient throughout, faithful, just like through the fiery furnace, uh, through the lion's den, because one day he's coming to set up his kingdom on earth. So that's the, the essence of the book. So we've got a couple more visions to look through. We'll look at one more tonight when we come back after the break. So we'll just take a short break here. Thank you. Welcome back. In this uh, section, we're going to deal with uh, Daniel's second dream. Um, the first dream, he sees the four empires uh, and an antichrist rising up. In Daniel's second dream, uh, sorry, this, you have to stick with it look carefully. He goes back to the dream again, but instead of the four empires, he just has the two empires. And so it sort of overlaps the dream and yet is only part of the dream. But from it, he wants to bring out who this Antichrist figure is. In this dream that he has, uh, he sees two empires symbolized by a ram and a goat. The ram represents the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, so the Babylonian Empire is gone now. Remember, the Medo-Persian Empire came next, followed by the Grecian Empire. So the ram represents this Medo-Persian uh, Empire, and the goat represents uh, ancient Greece, as it were. Out of the goat, it says, there comes a head full of horns, and one of which symbolizes that evil king that we saw in chapter 7, where this small horn comes out. So he sees this again in his second dream, but he just, instead of seeing four beasts representing four kingdoms, he just sees the two, the Medo-Persian and the Greek. We're told he will attack Jerusalem, and uh, exalt himself, this is this other king that appears now from, this, uh, from the Greek uh, empire, as it were. Uh, he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God and will exalt uh, his people and his kingdom. Same sort of pattern, isn't it, where these evil empires come up and an antichrist comes forth and, of course, God then moves in and deals with it all. In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. 
Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation, and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many, and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. It appears that Daniel's second vision is arranged around three characters. Um, for Daniel, it was all prophetic. Uh, whether he was talking about Alexander the Great and the Antichrist that would come from him, or whether he was talking about the Roman Empire, or whether he was talking about the end-time Antichrist that will rise up. It was all a long way away from him. Some people have suggested that actually um, it wasn't prophetic at all, but the book of Daniel was written after the first two events had happened. They're always trying to uh, remove the, the supernatural of God and somehow it was written 100, uh, you know, or j just about the time of Christ really rather than 600 years before Christ, a lot closer to when Christ came. Again, it's always up to the uh, discussion and dispute of, of, of all these things. But yeah, so we're, we're reading about three possible antichrists, as I mentioned the first time, uh, and three particular characters. Alexander the Great was, he was great. As a young man, probably of, in his 20s, 
Uh, he was a very powerful general and uh, leader of the, the armies of Greece. And uh, it took him about 13 years, not even that, to conquer the known world at that time. Everywhere he went, his, his, his troops and everything were so terrifying that the enemy would simply run away from him. And so at, at the age of 30-something, he had conquered the world. And he was quite depressed because there was nowhere else to conquer. And, um, but he didn't have to be depressed for long because one of the kings that he overthrew, he had a very faithful servant that was very angry about this. And so he, he poisoned him, he gave him poison. Not that a poison killed him straight away, it took a little bit of time uh, to, to, to have its effect, but he realized, or he was told, he would not survive. So at the very young age, this Alexander the Great was gonna die. And he eventually, he owned the world, the known world at that time. And so what he did, he gathered a number of generals, he had four major generals, and he said, you're in charge of these four parts of the, the great Alexander the Great Grecian Empire and divided it amongst them. Uh, one of the kings, or, or the, uh, the, the generals he gave it to, obviously they became kings in their own right, these generals, and uh, uh, one of them was a king of Syria, and his descendant uh, was this man, Antiochus, okay, who, was, who was going to be this Antichrist figure uh, that, that rose up. Um, he had a great army, this... Uh, this king, and so he had Israel in his sights. And so he attacked Israel in 169 BC. So we're getting very close to the time of Christ coming, just 160 years or so before. He marched into uh, Israel, and uh, he, was, uh, he just wanted to eradicate uh, Judaism just remove it. Some historians said he was the first uh, king like this that wanted to just uh, destroy a whole nation's religion. It had never been known before. If you conquered a country, you conquered the country. You didn't have to get them to change their religion. They just, they either worshipped, they just carried on the same, but they, they submitted themselves to you. Rome was like that as well. I mean, Rome tolerated the Jews, although they would wanted everyone to worship their Caesar. And that's, we know some of the arguments in scripture about that. So, uh, but this man was so evil and cruel. Uh, he just wanted to remove uh, any evidence of uh, Judaism at all. Uh, some say he was a, uh, a prophetic preview of the Antichrist that's gonna come uh, in the end times, uh, prior to the time of tribulation. A parallel between these two tyrants is so striking that some scholars have called him the Antichrist of the Old Testament. How depraved was this man? Well, it shows him, um, he did everything in his, in his power really to completely annihilate the Jewish religion. Uh, a bit like you could say, a bit like Hitler. Hitler was just 
going to destroy every Jewish person that existed, because if you destroy every Jewish person, then you destroy everything about the people of God in that respect. So during his attack on Jerusalem, he slaughtered 80,000 Jews and sent 40,000 into slavery. And uh, it wasn't so that he could conquer the land, it was so that he could remove uh, the people of God from the earth. His plan was to extinguish Jewish religion completely, not only opposed to the people, but their religion was foremost in his mind, wanting to replace it with uh, Greek worship and culture. He cancelled all Jewish festivals and replaced them with pagan festivals. Uh, where we went with Christianity, we picked up pagan festivals and converted them to Christian ones, I know. Uh, so you could see he was going to do the same thing. So he wasn't going to take the, the, the opportunity for people to have festivals, but they were going to worship uh, Jewish culture and Jewish gods. Uh, sorry, uh, Greek gods and Greek culture. Uh, when they had these celebrations in the temple, he put harlots. And so you can imagine the sort of celebration they would have had. He forbade the observance of the Sabbath day. He sacrificed a pig on the sacred altar of God just to uh, show his you know, distaste for everything. And the blood from this pig, he sprayed it all around the temple. And that's where we get this um, expression, the, the abomination that causes desolation in the temple. Um, See, he knew what would be most offensive. He knew what would hurt the most. And so he did everything in his power to eradicate it. He burned every uh, copy of the Torah that he was able to get, uh, possess. I'm sure people hid them, but every one he got, he destroyed them and destroyed many of the sacred uh, books as well of the Hebrew people because they wrote lots beside. It says the destruction lasted for 2,300 days for over four years. Okay, just constantly, constantly to destroy the things of God. We read about this in the part of chapter 8 uh, from verses 1 to 22. Uh, it, it's all about this man and, and what he does and the awful thing does. And then um, uh, it, it also it, it talks about the rise of the, the Greek Empire. As, as you go through it again, and I've explained some of the things to you, and you go back and, and read it clearly, it'll be more obvious to you. Uh, in those first 21 verses of chapter 8, it talks about the rise of this Greek Empire, its subsequent fragmentation into four different uh, sections, and then the cruel oppression of the Jewish people under Antiochus. In verse 23, though, it seems to enter a phase. It changes. There's a transition that takes place. And um, Daniel, when he receives the vision, uh, it's all prophetic, like I said. And today, when we look back at it, we say, well, the first 22 verses is historic. This is what happened. We can identify Alexander the Great and these things that happened in history and this terrible uh, person that went into sack Jerusalem and that and we can see it from a historic point of view but the the part after verse 22 23 onwards uh, it's different it's as though it's pointing to the future the Antichrist possibly who is to come 
this is what Bible scholars really enjoy from 23 on uh, a picture of the Antichrist that's to come. In scripture, there's over a hundred passages that refer to this Antichrist person. I read one to you from uh, about what Paul said about this person and also the things that John had said. He doesn't want us to be preoccupied with this Antichrist person, but he does want us to know about him. If we see things in, as we look out into the world and we see change, this is what many Christians are believing, that we should be looking for the coming of this person. Who is this person that will emerge? It'll be a sign of the end coming very quickly. So uh, I've been on the planet for 70 years. I've heard lots of ideas. Uh, uh, of course, I'm sure Hitler was considered as one of the possible antichrists. And then uh, um, for a long time, I, I was told it was the Catholic Church. Uh, okay, so, and then another time I was told um, uh, it was probably communism. Uh, and now people might be suggesting it's the Chinese. Uh, I, you know, so they're always looking, they're always looking and saying, is this the Antichrist? Is this a sign of the end? Is this, is this that? Well, um, we know he's coming if we buy into the idea that he is this person that will come. Do I sound like I'm for or against him? Okay, I want to leave it that way. Uh, because if you study anything and you read one side of the argument, you're, you're very much persuaded this way. Then you read others, and of course you're very much that way. And you really respect all these great theologians because they have many more qualifications than you, and they seem to know a lot more than you. And you're just, you're just caught between these two. And if you, if you believe in this, it takes you down this whole area of thinking. If you start to believe something different, it doesn't take this in. You've got a whole different area of understanding here. So often linked with this idea of the Antichrist is, is, the, is the special teaching that's given to the Jews being uh, brought into the kingdom at the end and then how God deals with them and the millennium lane of Christ and, and the Antichrist. It all, it all fits into this picture of Israel being saved. It seems more about Israel. Well, people who don't buy into the Israel being saved so much, they, they see no point for the millennium or no point for uh, the Antichrist rising up. And so it depends what you buy into in your theology of the track that you'll run. Some people just mix them all up together because they like the idea of all the different stories thrown in together. But is it important, you say? Well, we'll live our Christian life whether we understand it or not. Most Christians live a lot of their Christian life with understanding not very much at all. Uh, the fact that they're born again and going to heaven and that just seems to be enough for them and they need to do as good a job as they can. That's all right because we end up playing into the devil's hands because it's a little bit more complicated and somehow thinking that God will just cushion us and look after us all the time is a bit naive really. So we have to be a little bit careful and yeah, we should study. Um, so at the end of Daniel 8, we read of the eight characteristics that define this evil Antichrist figure. So if you buy into the fact that he's coming 
and he will appear before the, the tribulation and the coming of Christ, I'm going to go through what you need to be looking for. And all of these are just drawn strike, directly from here. And that what I read to you that Paul had said, some of that is repeated there. He would have taken this and wrote it there. The first thing about this Antichrist figure is that he'll be dynamic in his personality. Wouldn't we love to see a world ruler that was just dynamic, you know, just powerful, just truthful and honest and wise and charismatic and, and won people over and seemed to be very talented. And of course, we're into um, idolizing certain people, certain politicians. And, and so someone of that stature who would be dynamic in personality, he could easily sway people to uh, follow after him. The world would accept him as a deliverer, a saviour from many ills, as it were, sorting things out, just doing things so well, seemingly having the answers. I think sometimes our government uh, sort of, it, 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 it goes along banging from post to post and, and sometimes it gets it wrong and sometimes it has to do U-turns <laughs> and it seems to uh, be in a little bit of a mess and we're thinking, oh, perhaps we'd love a, a real statesman, somebody who was wise and sensible and that sort of thing. This is what this Antichrist person would be like, but, but on a world stage, charming, brave, mysterious, everything that we would be attracted to, he would be idolised by millions and millions of people. Scripture says he would be demonic in his programme. It says in Daniel 8 and 23, the understanding of dark sentences. Now you're thinking, Philip, that doesn't say that in my NIV. No, it doesn't. I had to search that one out and it comes in the, in the Geneva New, New Testament. And, uh, but, but the idea of, of Daniel 8 and 23, uh, he, will, he will be involved in, in some of the dark arts. He will solve problems by the power of the occult. Uh, wisdom will come to him from the enemy. The third thing is he'll be devilish in his power. It says in Daniel 8 and 24, he'll become very strong, but not with his own power. Antiochus, his evil relationship with Satan was the dress rehearsal, they say, for the Antichrist who will come at the end. This man was so violent, evil towards the people of God. It says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 9, the coming of the lawless one, sorry, the lawless one, will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. The fourth thing, he will be destructive in his persecution. Daniel 8 and 24, he will cause outstanding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. It says in Revelations 13, 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Uh, we know that it's 
a period of something like seven years is the whole period of his rising to power and then the evil things that he does and then it's cut short after seven years. He'll be deceitful, it says, in his practice. Daniel 8 and 25, he will cause deceit to prosper him. In Daniel 9 and 27, he will confirm a covenant with many uh, sorry, with many, uh, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifices and offerings. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This idea that he will uh, draw up treaties with Israel so there will be peace in the Middle East and then halfway through that time, three and a half years, he, he renags on that and then uh, just sends terrible persecution against the Jews. The sixth thing is that he will be defiant in his profession, Daniel 8 and 25. He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. He will claim to be God. Of course, the Prince of Princes is God himself. He'll take a stand. He will say, I am God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man is doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The seventh is, he will be defeated in his purposes, Daniel 8 and 25. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Antichius, he reserved his greatest fury, as it were, against the Jews. He was a nasty man anyway. Uh, and he's, he, just, he just refused that they would do anything except worship him. He was ferocious against him. Uh, the Jews stood against him, though. Uh, you might have heard of a group called the Maccabeans. The Maccabeans were... Uh, well, the Jews were good at resisting authority. We know that just about what they did against the Romans. But they were a hard people to suppress, a hard people to control and dominate. And I, I don't know of a nation, if you scattered it through the world for 2,000 years, would later all come back. They would just be so dispersed, you wouldn't recognise them. I mean, if you took like... Danish people and just sent them out of Dane, uh, Denmark for 2,000 years, Danish people would, would probably not just all come back again and, and identify themselves. So there's something very special about them, something that's tenacious. And of course, it's the hand of God upon them. And the thing that keeps them is very interesting. The thing that always draws them back together is the Friday, where they meet together uh, for, uh, you know, the Shabbat time together and they, they worship on the Saturday. It's, a, it's amazing how that influence is so deeply ingrained 
in all of them. So, uh, yeah, these Maccabeans, they, they resisted. They were obviously driven out into the wild places, but they set themselves up to overthrow this tyrant king and they were successful in doing it. So he was defeated. Um, he will be uh, destined and punished. It says in Daniel 7:11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So he's obviously, that's the end of him. In Daniel 8 and 25 it says, yet he will be destroyed without human power. So it's God who comes and destroys the Antichrist. And this, uh, this previous one that I spoke about, although the Maccabeans uh, resisted and fought against him, he had a terrible end to his life. A terrible disease got hold of him. And uh, it was just awful, his death. Brought down by God, not by human powers. Antichrist too will meet that same doom. It says in Matthew 23 and 41, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation 19 and 21, the two of them, that Satan and the false prophets, they were thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That was after already this Antichrist figure had been thrown into the lake. They followed him soon after. So that's uh, possibly that most people get excited about the book of Daniel, uh, reading about this Antichrist figure, reading about uh, the historical Antichrist figure that came uh, following on from Alexander the Great. Little is said about the Roman Antichrist because they were definitely Antichrist. Uh, but then it's when Christ's kingdom came on the earth. And, uh, but, but these two figures, so it's up to you really. You, you read it, you think about it, and you, you, whether you believe there's an antichrist person coming towards the end before the tribulation and all that happens, we'll, we'll see. There's more to piece together in our last session uh, next week. So we'll be looking at the final vision he gets. We'll look at the, the prayer that he has, we'll see the, as the angel appears to bring him the messages from heaven and so forth, and then we'll wrap the whole thing up. Uh, Daniel never went back uh, from Babylon. He was in captivity all his life. Uh, 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 considered one of the four major prophets, uh, but never ever uh, prophesied to his own people ever once. Very strange, never prophesied in that sense. Uh, and yet he was a major prophet, maybe more for us than for his own people. That's why we're really interested as Christians. Who was he prophesying to? He wasn't prophesying to the Jewish people. They were all in captivity, uh, but of course it was to us and he spent his life in captivity and God protected him and gave him these tremendous visions. So we'll call it a halt there and uh, be quick to get back next week and um, finish this exciting book off. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come back next week for our last lesson in the Daniel module.
Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can now do so by going over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.